You guys ready? Here we go. Get your Bibles out. No intro video this morning. We got quite a uh, trimmed down set here. We, we're integrating currently a lot of our stuff into our new building. So uh, here we go. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5. You have no idea how excited I am. Oh, my goodness. I am, uh, I'm almost as excited as I am for the gospel, not quite. I love the gospel. The gospel still far exceeds my excitement, but I am really, really, really excited. And I am amazed, amazed at God's wonderful grace that he has showered upon us for many, many years here at Desert Breeze. And, and I'm excited about this new teaching series, new teaching series this morning. I'm glad you're here with us. We're going to begin to work our way through the, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's, uh, my wife's sitting in a different place this morning. She, she threw me off. It threw me off. I saw her there and I was just like, whoa, she's supposed to be sitting over here. I'm within striking distance this morning. If, someone, if, she, if she tries to come up on the stage, Mike, will you keep her off the stage? We need to get somebody over here on this side also. Because she'll probably come up here and try to take, on, take me on. Take over. She already took over a long time ago. But uh, this is our new teaching series, City on a Hill. We'll be looking in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going to talk about different. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the words... But you are no different from anybody else. Why is that? Because you cannot encounter the creator of the universe and remain the same. When you encounter the creator of the universe, you are no longer suited for a normal life. Your life has changed. That's what, that's what I love about Desert Breeze. It's really made up of people who, are in, who have encountered the creator of the universe, and they have been changed and are continuing to encounter him and walk with him and know him and experience him. Now, what's interesting about this is that the, this, this is a brand new kind of life that Jesus gives us. And in fact, in this text, nine times in 12 verses, he, used the, he uses the word blessed. Anybody know what the word blessed means? Blessed. Some translations say happy. Happy many times over. Another translation, one of the translations or one of the commentators that uh, I was reading said this, favored by God, envied by man. Another uh, definition of blessed would be total fulfillment, complete well-being. Now, now listen to me. There is no life on this planet Earth no amount of money, no married relationship or any kind of relationship or, or any achievement, accomplishment, accolade that you could receive that compares or can even compete with the life that is blessed by God. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're talking about a life that is blessed by God, the new life that we have in Him. It is simply amazing. There's no better life on this planet Earth. That's the Christian life. That's the Christian life. That's what he's talking about here. 
And so the Sermon on the Mount gives us Jesus' teaching on how we should be different. We're going to look at that. We're going to spend the next few months on this. I think these are our marching orders in our new location. This is what God has put on my heart for us as a church family and the impact that he wants us to have in our new location. So that's where we're headed. And uh, let me pray, and then we'll dive into our text here this morning. Would you bow your heads with me once again? Glorious Father, your word tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.17, those who are in Christ have become a new creation. The old things have passed away, and all things have become new. God, you have given us a new privilege of knowing you, a new passion to follow you, a new priority to serve you, a new potential to become more and more like you. And we pray this morning that you would convict us of sin, compel us by your grace, and conform us more and more into your character through the study of your word, the work of your Holy Spirit, for your glory and our deep and durable satisfaction. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this. Let me read through the text. Now it's going to take a minute. It's going to take a few minutes to get uh, get back to the text. But I'm going to read the text, and then we're going to do something that uh, that you might think, "Wow, that's uh, why would he take that on on the last weekend?" It will work through. It looks like a lot of fill in the blanks. Some of you looked at the notes and went, "Wow, we're going to be here all day." No, we're not. This is going to roll pretty quick. I want to get out of here. Okay. Seriously. And uh, this might look like a real ambitious thing that we're doing here this morning because we're going to first of all do a survey of the whole Sermon on the Mount because it's always good. Sometimes when you miss the forest for the trees, you get locked into the details. And so I just want you to see the big picture. And the purpose of that is to, for you to feel really, really bad, okay? Because it will tend to make you see the bad news so that we can understand the good news. It's not until you understand your dire condition apart from Christ that the magnitude of his provision brings unspeakable and glorious joy. So we talk about the gospel's good news, but it's good news in the context of the bad news that we live in. The thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it to the fullest. And so... We're going to read, and this is really a a list of really what happens when someone encounters Christ. This is the conversion process, verses 1 through 12 of of Matthew chapter 5. This is Jesus speaking. So, accepting the very bad news, your sin is necessary before you're ready to receive the very good news, God's grace. And so we're looking at the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount. That's a survey, and then the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll talk about... Uh, really the savior of the Sermon on the Mount, why we so desperately need him. So let me read the text. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed blessed or blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord to us. This morning. So, first of all, the beauty of the Sermon on the Mount, 10 points, 10 point overview of how Christ wants us to live. You guys ready to write? Here we go. We're going to dive in. First of all, number one, Christians run to, not from problems. We're going to look at this in more detail next week in our brand new venue. We're going to talk about how God wants us to be salt and light. How many are familiar with that show of hands? Salt and light. We are to be salt and light in this world. And salt in ancient times was not mainly for flavor, but for preservation. You would rub it into the meat so that it wouldn't decay and fall apart. What's the point? Here's the point. Most people run when they see people's lives, families, neighborhoods falling apart socially, economically. But as Christians, our default mode should be that we run to those people. That we run to them, not away from them. I've heard people say, oh, these people that are in our small group, they are so high maintenance. I wish they would find another small group. No, you run to them. You are there to serve them, to love them, to minister to them. And, uh, and so as Christians, that's our, that should be our default mode. Where things are the worst, we are to pour ourselves out with time, money, emotion, With loving deeds, that's your first fill-in-the-blank. We run to, not from problems. So how are you doing with that one? How are you doing? Let's go to the next one, number two. Christians make everyone feel cherished. Do you make everyone feel cherished, those around you, welcomed and loved? He says, you have heard that it said, do not murder, but I say... Don't be angry. Don't hold a grudge. Don't insult them. Don't disdainfully treat them like nobody, like a nobody. If you do that, you have killed them. You have murdered them. So if murder is wrong, then the seeds that grow into murder are also wrong. So the point here is that every single person that you meet, regardless of their race, class, gender, moral character, or or even personality, you must treat as infinitely precious beings made in the image of God. How are you doing? Here's the next two. Three and four are two different forms of integrity. Number three, Christians have sexual integrity. He says not to commit adultery. It says you have heard that it is said don't commit adultery. But I say don't even look at a woman and lust after her. What Jesus is teaching, we'll get to that in a few weeks. We'll talk about that. This is what he's saying. Don't give your body to someone unless you're willing to give your whole life to them. That's in essence. That's really what the Bible teaches. He wants spirit, soul, and body together. That's called integrity. If you give your body before giving your spirit, soul part, you actually undermine the spirit, soul part. You undermine the, the infrastructure of the relationship. It is meant, first of all, for you to connect spiritually, then soul, friendship-wise, and then that becomes the foundation by which you give your body. That's what he's saying. You will undermine, you undermine the relationship, you create a dissonance within your own soul, within your own heart, and that's why he teaches, he teaches us this, we'll look at that in more detail. 
In other words, don't have sex unless you're married. Don't do something with your body that you're not willing to do with your whole life. Don't be physically naked unless you're willing to per- be personally naked and, and go ahead and get married. And uh, getting married is the least of intimacy. That's the least thing that you will do of intimacy, truly. A lot of people say, well, I don't need to get married to be intimate. No, yeah, yeah, you actually do because that's kind of foundational. Everything else will build on that. And, and so we'll talk more about that. Okay, how are you doing? How are you doing on that one? I mean, we live in a society that just goes completely contrary. You know, we have, have sex first and then we'll, we'll make the commitment later. And what we've already done is we've undermined the commitment. Okay, we'll talk more. Here's number four. We're talking about forms of integrity. Christians have speech integrity. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, if you've ever read it, he says, let your yes be yes and your what? No be no. Make sure that everything you say is absolutely true as if you swore in a stack of Bibles. No game playing, no mask wearing, no pretense. Be authentic. Be real. Be who God made you to be. Don't try to be somebody else. That's what he's saying here. And so we, don't, we, we, we tend to not do very... I mean, if I really look at my life, there's a lot of pretense in my life. There's a lot of pretense in your life. Just how we... It's how we roll, how we do life. I want people to think less of me. If they really knew me, they would reject me. And so that's the society we live in. It's all about pretense. And yet he's saying, man, don't don't do that. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Number five, Christians respond to hostility with truth, truth and grace. This is the section in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a survey now. This is a section of the Sermon on the Mount where he says, turn the other cheek and love your enemies. That's crazy, isn't it? This is what it means. You might think, well, that's, how could I love my enemy? I've got a, few, I got a whole list of enemies. How could I love them? It's because you don't understand God's love for you. I'm telling you, the more you understand his love for you, you you're going to begin to see, oh, I could see how to love my enemies because of his amazing love for me. It's so transforming. And so, so Christians respond to hostility with truth and grace. How do you respond to hostility? I didn't do so well this last week. I was in a little Bible study and some guy walked up to the table at Starbucks and made some sarcastic remark to us. And you could tell that he was almost like he was saying, you guys are pathetic losers. It was kind of what I heard. And, uh, and uh, I had that little bit of like hostility rise in me because I saw it in him. I'm an old construction worker firefighter, okay? Like, what the heck? I said to... Uh, Eric, who was there, I said, Eric, you could take him. It's like, we were studying our Bible. He's made some sarcastic remark, smart aleck remark. He's like, wow, get out of here before we hurt you. We're studying the Bible about God's love. It's like, there's some uh, inconsistency there. Just shows you how desperate I need Jesus. You know, as I'll go through this list, it's like, yep, 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 yep. It's like, oh, that's me, that's me, that's me. Oh, I am so desperate for your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace and that your love never changes. It's always there for me. It's not based on my performance. In fact, that's what changes my performance. And so I'm learning that. I'm learning that. And so, I mean, it was just, I mean, this, this kind of stuff just happens consistently and regularly as I continue to look to him. In this culture, they talk about, they would kiss the cheek in this particular culture 
And uh, so turn the other cheek, mentor, to so respond to your enemies with melt in your mouth, love and truth, that you seek to win them over and reconcile the relationship. That you would speak the truth in love in such a way that you seek to, to win them over, to win their heart, and show the love of God, and not take it personal. We take so many things personal. Number six, how are we doing? We're, we're rolling, aren't we? Moving? Okay, here we go. Hang on to your uh, hat. Number six, Christians are radically generous to the poor with humility. And it's interesting when you read this particular section, he says, uh, he says when you give to the poor. He doesn't say if you give to the poor. So Jesus is just saying, hey, you're going to give to the poor. If you, if you know me, if you're walking to me, if I've transformed your life, you're going to give to the poor. And then he says, don't let, your, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Have you ever thought that was a little weird? It's like, what, what is he talking about there? I, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Here's, here's the idea. Don't tell yourself about it. Don't pat yourself on the back is what he's saying. Don't make a big deal about it. Like, uh, don't, you won't do, he says, Christians are, ra- uh, are radically generous to the poor with humility. You won't do it. You won't be radically poor in a condescending or proud way or a self-congratulatory way. That's what he means. He says, you're not going to be looking down on them. You're just great. You're glad that God has blessed you so that you can be a blessing to them because you see yourself in them, really, in so many ways that maybe not physically or economically, but spiritually. You're desperate for Jesus. Here's number seven. Christians are more fervent in prayer in private versus public prayer. And I, and I believe he goes, so when you pray, don't stand on the corners and make a big deal about it like the Pharisees do. But pray in your closet in the corner where your father sees you in secret and he will bless you and he rewards you. That's the idea. So it's the, this is the acid test of what your heart is really like. Of course, you're going to pray in your small group and you're going to pray when you come to church because everybody's here and everybody's watching. But how often do you pray when you are alone? Do you only pray when someone is watching? See, a lack of private prayer life shows that you have a pretty shallow relationship with God. So if I tend to pray more when people are around as opposed to when I'm all alone, when I'm with the Lord, that just shows you where, where my relationship with this, is with God. That's, what, that's part of that challenge. How do you feel now? Uh, number eight, Christians are radical, radically generous with money. I thought you just talked about that one. Well, uh, kind of, but we were talking to the poor, and now we're talking in a general sense, because he, he actually deals with this in a couple different places. And uh, so when you give, don't make a, a big deal about it. What is your attitude toward money? He kind of deals with that. He's, he talks about storing up treasures in heaven versus on earth. And uh, so what is your attitude toward money? This is a sign that a Christian's heart is moving toward God when you're radically generous towards God through a local church family like Desert Breeze. Which, by the way, there's no way we'd be able to make this move if it hadn't been for many, many, many of you giving generously and faithfully and consistently and sacrificially. And that's why we're able to do what we're able to do. Most people don't have no idea that even what it costs to, to lease a big facility like this. Of course, we're going to be saving money by building, by having built out and bought that. We're actually saving money compared to what our lease build is. It's just, it's totally amazing. It's truly a God thing. 
And all of our elders at the time when we heard this, they go, I, we can't believe it. We were like shocked. It's, it, we're we're going to save money. We're saving money by building and uh, moving into a new facility. That, that's just, that's God. It's just, we, uh, it wasn't from any of our ingenuity. It was totally God. It's all for his glory. And so, and we've done it because you guys have given faithfully. Thank you so much for that. And so, the, the, you know, when you're giving generously, it's just a, it's a sign that a Christian's heart is moving toward God. He says, don't store up for yourself uh, money on earth. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So this idea of treasure or storehouse is where you put your money. What do you effortlessly spend your money on? What do you effortlessly spend your money on? Uh, that's your storehouse. And that's where your heart is. If you have a hard time giving away 10% of your money to the church, and I understand where people are economically. Sometimes, some people, that's a rule of thumb, but you might have to start somewhere. But if you're not giving it all or you're trying to find that place and it's really hard for you, but yet you can give your money elsewhere, it just shows you where your heart is. It's uh, because your real storehouse is something else if you have a hard time giving to the local church family and to the poor and, and all that. It's just, just a measure. That's what he's teaching us. So like I said, we have to see our sinfulness to see the beauty of the grace of God working in our life. Number nine, Christians don't worry because they love and trust God. Oh, that's a good one. Do you ever worry? I never worry. I've been stressed out. But uh, Christians don't worry because they love and trust God. He talks about in this couple, about three or four times he says, don't be anxious, don't be anxious. God takes care of the birds, takes care of the flowers, takes care of all of this. He'll take care of you. That's the idea here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. What's your attitude toward circumstances? Maybe you're going through hard circumstances right now. Do you love and trust God so much that you don't worry? It really comes down to loving and trusting God. See, worry is a sign of where your heart's real God is. Let me say that again. Worry is a sign of where your heart's real God is. Your real God is being threatened in some way. That's why you're worrying. Something where you get, get your sense of identity from. A certain amount is okay, but when it's inordinate, it's, it's obviously misplaced identity and it's idolatry. Generosity is a sign of where your heart's real God is. Your prayer life is a sign of where your heart's real God is. Number 10, you thought, I could never get through all of that that fast, I'll bet. But I did. Christians are humble, winsome, and loving to those who are wrong spiritually, politically, and morally. This is where he says, don't judge. That's a good one. A lot of people, a lot of, most non-Christians know that one. Because they'll throw it back in your face, Christian. Don't judge me. And what's interesting, don't judge and you won't be judged. It can't mean you don't criticize, then we would have to get rid of most of the Bible, okay? So it doesn't mean that you don't criticize and, and that you're not supposed to be somehow discerning. But he's saying here, don't criticize without humility. What's your attitude toward people who are wrong? People who are wrong spiritually, politically, uh, morally. 
I mean, have you ever found yourself doing this? You're driving, so I cut you off, and then you get up behind them, and you go, well, no wonder they drive like that. Look who they voted for. See their little bumper sticker back there? So it's, uh, so what is that, that disdain? What are you, a Republican or a Democrat or liberal or what you know so we get into these where we are polarized and we demonize and we do all of this and he's saying you know what you should respond to them with such humility and winsomeness and love that you want to win them to Jesus you want to point them to Jesus so so how have you done how are you doing with all of those that's a lot isn't it we're going to spend the next couple months looking at each of those uh, in detail just to see how God wants to transform our lives and I'm, I'm ready for it because I need my life to continue to be transformed into his image. Because I want him to so beautify us here at Desert Breeze that people would walk in. And by the way, that venue, it's amazing. It is a dream come true. It is beyond my wildest dreams. The guy that we had build that out, and, many, and we have many uh, contractors and people that came in and donated time and money and all kinds of stuff in there. It's, it's pretty one of those. When you walk in, it's one of these things that you go, whoa, it's super nice. And yet it's all through the generosity uh, of people and God and what he's doing in our lives. And, that, and there's a real wow factor when you walk in. But I want a greater wow factor because of the way we love one another and love him. I want people to see that and be going, wow, we've, I've never been around a group of people that ever love me so much and they love their God so much. I want to know the God that they know. See, that's the wow factor we want more than anything. That's, we're going we're to have a beautiful building, but it's just a means for greater ministry so that we can continue to allow Christ to change us uh, so that we can minister the goodness and grace of God. So here's the next one, the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount. If you really understand the Sermon on the Mount, you will say, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones said, you will say, God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. God, save me from the Sermon on the Mount. Why is it? Why, why would we say that? Because it exposes us, it convicts us, it, it condemns us. The reason the Sermon on the Mount brings discomfort is because it's exactly how you want others to live around you. And you know this is how you should be living. And at the same time, you know you don't live like this. We don't live like this. So here's your fill in the blanks. Until you feel the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount, you don't really understand it. So it's an impossibility. And number two, the impossibility of the Sermon on the Mount drives us to the Savior of the Sermon on the Mount. And so you celebrate grace most joyfully when you've mourned your sin most deeply. Some of us don't have that unspeakable and glorious joy is because we haven't seen the depth of our sin and the height of his grace saving us. And so the more you live in the reality of that, boy, I tell you, unspeakable and glorious joy. And so the Savior of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount is not prescriptive, but descriptive. And we are rolling right along. I need to check that time to make sure where we are with our time. We don't, I don't have a big clock up here. But, uh, so it is, you guys know the difference between being de- uh, prescriptive and descriptive? It's not, it's not prescribing, saying if you live like this, God will bless you, but it's describing lives that are blessed. So it's a descriptive description of those who have encountered Christ and understand his grace, and this is the difference that he makes in our lives. 
It's a gift received by God's grace, not a goal achieved by man's work. So when we go through this, we're not going to say, hey, try harder. Come on. I want you to encounter Jesus, and I want you to know his grace, because that's what ultimately changes you. So it's, let me say it again, it's not prescriptive, but it's descriptive. It's, it's really talking about, and you, you guys know this, how I live comes from who I am. So what I do in my life comes from my, my, my doing comes from my being. So a lot of times we focus on the doing. Why well, I, I need to not do those things. I need to do more of these better things. Well, it goes back to your being. Allow that your being and who you are to be transformed. So the goal is to understand that no matter how you perform, he loves you. And when you understand that, that begins to change your performance. That's what ultimately transforms you. You don't beat yourself up. You be captivated by the beauty and the glory of the Savior of the Sermon on the Mount. This is describing Christian conversion. Now we go to that list that we walked through. This is really describing Christian conversion. This is what sinners gripped by God's grace look like. And the first four are the emptying process. So if you, have, if you tell me you're a Christian, this is what's going on in your life. So the first four are the emptying process. And the second four are the filling process. It's not like a once-done thing. This is something that we really do every day. This is what repentance looks like. Repent and believe, repent and believe. This is kind of the process of that. And so, first of all, poor in spirit means to be spiritually bankrupt. Let's, walk, let's talk about that just, uh, just for a moment. What does that mean? If you've ever been uh, financially bankrupt, it means that you can't pay the, you know, the debt you owe to your creditors. It's crazy. You know, we live in America today and everybody thinks that they can earn, their, earn a relationship with God. Well, of course, you know, that my, my good outweighs my bad. And when I stand before God Almighty, I know that he'll receive me in because I'm basically a good person. Everybody thinks they're going to heaven, by the way. You know that. Everybody in America, because this is America. God bless America. And we're basically good people. You know, thinking that you, listen to me, you, get, you better get this one, thinking that you can earn your way in a right relationship with God or get to heaven is a little bit like, like thinking that you can jump across the Grand Canyon. Some of us might be able to jump, you know, 20 feet out and some two feet or three feet, but nobody can jump across the Grand Canyon from, I think it's from the north to the south. You can't do that. You can't. You have too low view of God and too high view of yourself if you think that you can somehow earn, earn a right standing with God. That's that poverty of spirit that begins to come into our lives when we begin to understand that there's nothing I can do to earn a right relationship with God. I'm headed for hell. All of us are, apart from the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the reality of the Bible. And I'll tell you what, not until the Holy Spirit illuminates you to the reality of that, you, you can't be saved. You're not going to be saved. The Holy Spirit has to bring you to that awareness. And there's just a lot of people, I know that they think they're saved, but they're not saved. Because they think it's their good deeds. There are no good deeds that will ever get you even close to God. And that's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm spiritually bankrupt. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. What does that mean, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? When we fall short of the glory of God, it's, it's meaning that anything, it is anything that is more important to you than God. 
Are there things in your life that are more important to you than God? I'm sure there are. We battle that all the time. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. So this is, it is a failure to desire and display the beauty and the glory of God above, above anything else. It is to love anything more than we love God. And then that leads to the next one is mourn, sadness for breaking God's heart. So this is that emptying. So I recognize there's nothing I can do. I know that I've trampled on his love and wisdom because that's the essence of, of sin. Here, here's what it is. Imagine, I apologize for this illustration, but I think it best helps to understand because I know that there are those that have experienced this, and it's, it's a terrible tragedy, but you've come home. You come home, and you find your spouse in bed with another lover. It would rip your heart out. Well, that's, in essence, what we've done to God. We've chosen, we've preferred anything more than God. We let people, things, and circumstances dominate our thoughts, stir our deepest emotion, and move us to action. It's why we live. We live for something that's temporal as opposed to something... That's eternal God. Only he can satisfy our deepest needs. But we constantly battle that. That's the, that's the struggle within our heart. And so when we begin to realize that our sin is against a holy, righteous God that loves us and gave him, while we were still sinners, he died for us. Romans 5.8, it's just, it's, it's phenomenal. It's amazing. And so there's that mourning. There's that sadness. God, I do not want to break your heart. When I mistreat people, I know that I break your heart because I'm not living in the reality of how much you love me and how you've treated me. So that's what creates that. So poor in spirit, mourn, sadness for breaking God's heart. Remember David? I put that on your, uh, as a cross-reference, Psalm 51.4. He says, against you, you alone have I sinned. When he committed adultery, murder, did the things that he did, Psalm 51.4. And then it creates this meekness. Meekness is not weakness. It actually has the idea of domesticating a wild animal. And so what happens is that we, we have a total surrender to God. It's like, God, I, I need you. I want you. I give you my life. I surrender. I surrender my life to you. And then number four is hunger and thirst for righteousness. And the righteousness that we desire, everybody seeks righteousness. Righteousness has to do with approval. Where do I get my sense of approval? So I value the approval of God above all. I want you to think about this. That through the gospel, it says uh, the gospel has that ability to transform our lives. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And then it goes on. That's one sixteen of Romans. And then 17, it tells us what the gospel is. For it is... For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. So we put our faith in Jesus. We have all the approval of the only one in the universe that matters. There's no amount of success or failure. There's no amount of anything that can wipe that out. You have the approval of the creator of the universe through Jesus Christ. There is nothing more satisfying than that. It's amazing. And, uh, and so, you know, someone snubs you. It's like, he, he approves of me. He loves me. Oh, well, I, I, I messed up there. He loves me. He approves of me. I'm going to keep running back into his arms. He's there for me. See, that's, that's part of, that's the idea there. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's just you're in right standing with God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Approval. 
being in right standing with him. Never forget when I got the call to be a, a firefighter when I went to the fire academy. I was, I was elated. I was excited. What a great career opportunity. And I was accepted. Three, 4,000 people that took the test, went to the, went to the physical agility, went through all that. And I was like, wow, I can't believe it. He called, called me up on the phone, the chief, and said, hey, we're, you're part of, that, you know, part of that group, that elite group that's going to be a part of the fire academy. I was, I, approval. But that, that's nothing compared to the approval that, that we have in him. Approval for all eternity. It's amazing. And uh, we hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then, and then okay, so, so that's the emptying. Now here's the filling, merciful. This is what's going to happen, compassion and action. By this all men will know that you are my disciples by your what? By your love for one another, John 13, 34 through 35. And then number six, pure in heart. God is your most satisfying reality. Pure in heart has that idea. 2 Corinthians 11.3 talks about how the enemy tries to lead us astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Here's the battle. Here's the battle that you have every day. This is what it means to fight, fight for faith, the good fight of faith. It's to fight to find your greatest delight in him because there's so many things. Pure in heart just means that he's your one and only. He's your Savior. He's your Lord. He's the one you're living for. You want Him more than anything. Your heart is smitten by His beauty and His glory. That's what you want each and every day. And so that's, uh, that's that idea of pure in heart. I've got a pure heart. Man, I want Him. I want to live for Him. I want to honor Him. I want to glorify Him. And then peacemakers. We are ministers of reconciliation. So not only am I finding deep satisfaction in Him, but I want to tell the world about Him. I want you to know him. I want to live my life in such a way that as I'm enjoying him, that you would look at my life and go, wow, I want what, what he has. And so I'm going to do everything I can to build a bridge to you. And then I'm also going to work to help to build a bridge with, with one another in relationships, in marriages. And, and, and that's what happens. You are a bridge builder. You're a peacemaker. And then persecuted. Number eight, persecution for Christ is of greater wealth. That's how he's describing it in those verses, is of greater wealth. Verses 10 and 11 is greater wealth than all the praise of earth. And I was, uh, a couple of verses came to mind in Acts. You got Peter and John, you got the disciples who are just, they have encountered the living Lord and Savior and they are stoked. And it's the, it's the fourth chapter of Acts, and it says, And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they, had, that they were uneducated, common, ordinary men, and they were astonished and recognized that they had been with Jesus. A little bit later on, they say, Hey, you guys quit talking about Jesus. And they, they say in verse 20, chapter 4 of Acts, For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then you go up another chapter over, and what it says is that they take them in and they beat them. And they charge them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then they begin to let, they let them go. And this is what it says in verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name of Jesus. Man. That's crazy, huh? These are guys that are, just a group of people who are so captivated by the beauty and the glory of Christ. It didn't matter what anybody said about them. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for us at Desert Breeze. Now, this is how we'll, we'll end this morning. I told you I wanted to get out of here. huh? That was pretty quick. That's probably the quickest message you've ever heard from me, huh? Woo!
You guys were busy writing too. So here's what I want to do. I want to read to you. Uh, this is uh, before the Beatitudes. That's what we read. Describe you and me. Guess who it describes? It describes Jesus. Before it describes you and you and me, it describes Jesus. And it tells us, I gave you some verses there, talk a little bit more about that with the cross-reference, but uh, 2 Corinthians 9.8, he who knew no it says this, for you know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. He became poor, the creator of the universe became poor so that you might become rich. Oh my goodness. I never, I never get tired of talking about the gospel. Just those words are so sweet. Now listen to this. This is what one theologian said as it related to the, the Beatitudes. Why can you and I be as rich as kings? Because Jesus Christ became spiritually poor. Why can you and I be comforted? Only because he wept inconsolably in the dark, in the garden. Why are you and I inheriting the earth? Because he became meek like a lamb before his shears and was stripped of everything. They cast lots for his garments. Why can we be filled? Because of the cross, because on the cross he said, I thirst. And we can be filled and we can be satisfied because of that. Why can you and I obtain mercy? Because he got none, not from Pilate, the crowd, or from his father. Why will one of these days we be able to see God? Because Jesus was pure. He was single-minded, undivided, laser-focused, went to the cross, experienced darkness. Why will, we, why will we experience peace? Because the whole world, including his father, attacked him. Remember on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he did that for us, we can have, we are rich in him. It's not based on your performance, based on anything that you do or don't do. It's based on what he did. And the more that gets a hold of your life, it transforms you. It's called grace. Last statement, it's on your notes. It's Jesus' indispensable and costly death that bridges the vast chasm of divine alienation and restores us to the place of favor and friendship with God that ultimately melts and transforms our hearts. That's it. That's the end. We're closing a chapter here. And I am excited. Seven times here at Desert Breeze. So here, a couple last thoughts here. A couple last thoughts is that this is the biggest and most strategic move in the history of Desert Breeze. We've been going for 22 years. I'm telling you, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. Amazing. This has been, this has been the ride of my bride and my wife. We love you guys. We love you. We're ready to go for another 20. We think the best is yet to come. I mean, we, we praise God. We think our best years are ahead of us. We really do. We're just warming up. I mean, it's just, I've, I've never been more excited about the gospel than what I am now. I'm, I'm, I'm not even in the least bit burned out about any of this. I'm like, whoa, I'm stoked. This has been a lot of hard work nine years here, but I'll tell you what, it's, it's paid off and it'll be even hard work over there. But God's grace is sufficient. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness and your consistency. Thank you for uh, 
giving your life to Jesus and, and, and allowing him to use you through Desert Breeze. Uh, we're going to end by what we do typically, traditionally, when we have our, um, our big baptism parties. We're going to do the big yay God. Would you guys stand? This is what we're going to do. And just some of you that might freak out a little bit by this, this is biblical. It's Psalm 47.1, and it says, Shout to the Lord with a voice of triumph. And you see this throughout the book of Psalms. You see it throughout the Bible. And you actually see it, you'll see it today when you watch football. Just before they get out and play the game, they all huddle up, and then they go, Yeah! And they get all crazy. And they even do it in their huddles just before they uh, go out and try to pound on the other team. And, uh, and here's, here's a little bit... Uh, we are going to do some major damage to the kingdom of darkness. I'm, and if you, thought, if you thought we saw a lot of people's lives change in the last 22 years, which I have seen that happen a lot, even more so are we going to see that happen in the next 20 or however many years God gives us here. And so on the count of three, we're going to do a big yay God. In fact, it even talks about clapping and applauding and doing a shout of victory, of triumph. And that's what we're going to do, and that's how we're going to end our time together as we wrap up our time this morning. And then when we get over to the new place, make sure you get there early, because when we end the first service in the new place, we're going to do the big shout, voice of triumph. How many remember uh, the movie Braveheart when they did the big shout before they went out? and We're going to kick... We're, gonna, we're coming after you. And everybody's like, Rah! that's what this is. Okay. The, the enemy better start running right now. Huh? Here we go on the count of three. We're gonna, it's called yay God. Okay, I better tell you. Because I don't know what some of you are going to yell. Okay, I probably ought to tell you what to yell. huh? Kick their butts or something like that. It's like, just say yay God because that's, that's where our victory is. So... On the count of three. One, two, three. Yay, God! Woo! Praise God. Praise God. God is good. God is good. You guys are awesome. Love you guys very much. See you next week in our new place.